Well, grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew 14. We were supposed to be in Matthew 14 this morning, um, but late last night, right as we were getting ready for bed, for whatever reason, um, uh, I, I came across the, the passage about the axe floating and uh, read an article um, about that. And I couldn't get it out of my head, so I stayed up to nearly 2 o'clock in the morning uh, just changing everything. That happens about once every seven years. Uh, next week, I believe, is our seventh anniversary, so in seven years we'll do that again. It does happen every once in a while. So we're just going to move what we had originally planned in the morning to look at in the evening. That's fine. The same Spirit inspired uh, the Bible. But I, I can guarantee you, uh, this time yesterday, the idea of an axe head floating in the river was not on my mind. Right? That's just sort of how, how it works. Uh, but nevertheless, Matthew chapter 14, a story we've actually looked at from John's perspective, uh, and we'll conclude our look at John, uh, Lord willing, next week, uh, at least with his seventh sign prior to resurrection. And that's the raising of Lazarus. But, so we've looked at this from John's perspective, but Matthew goes in a slightly different direction. It's the feeding of the 5,000. So if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's word. We'll read verses 13 to 21. The evangelist Matthew writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. When the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the village and buy food for themselves. Jesus said, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, Oh, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. He heard the crowds and sat down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for uh, uh, this opportunity to open up your word. May we feast on your word. And as you feed us the gospel, may you open our hearts and our minds, our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we will go to Jesus. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I know a lot of men like to brag about their first car. And when men do that, other men get jealous. So let me brag about my first car. It was a 1987 baby blue, like North Carolina blue, forget I'm talking to Kentucky fans here, North Carolina blue, Chevy Nova, hatchback, okay, zero to 60 sometimes, okay, you couldn't get it up the hill, in fact, I had a, I had a, a teenager when I was a youth pastor who would ride in the front, and, and we would go up hill, we would make jokes about it, and he would do this like jumping thing, you know, and it would actually get the car to, you know, get it up the hill a little better. Uh, my, my wife had a car just like when she was growing up, and her dad would always, you know, say, this was back when you didn't have to wear seatbelts, and mom's arm in her lap was the seatbelt. So she'd ride in the front, and, and my father-in-law would say, hey, Mandy, won't you push? Help us get up. And she would really push. Well, this car was one of those cars. I love this car. I, I wish I still had this car. Now, it's not going to go more than 20,000 miles total, right? I mean, it's just, it wasn't built to, to last long. It, 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 was, it was built 
to be affordable. <laughs> that's, that's about it. It's amazing, isn't it, that a 1971 Chevy Nova is just the greatest car ever. I'd put that up over the Chevelle, and those are just the two best cars ever, and I will fight you over this. This, this is the most important thing you'll get tonight. Chevelles and Nova, around 1970 to 1972, the best cars ever. And if you disagree with me, you're wrong, right? How is it you go from that beautiful of a car to a hatchback Nova in the mid-80s? It, it, it just, just amazes me. Nevertheless, I, I worked in Florence at the time and, and would drive an hour a couple times a week to go to work. And, and I noticed that one day, as, as all Novas would, would have done, 87 Novas would do, things were starting to fall apart. But most notable to me at this time was the dash light stopped working. That meant at night you couldn't see how fast you were going and you couldn't see uh, your fuel gauge. So I had to do one of two things. One, guess. And two, turn on the dome light, look real quick, turn it off, and go about my business. And I would do that. I would spend a few minutes thinking, I have a rough idea how fast I'm going. I have a rough idea how much gas I have. If you're in the interstate, you can almost judge by other people, right? You tell yourself, well, cops ain't going to get me if people are passing me, right? And so you just got to go with the flow of the traffic. I'm not recommending that. I'm just confessing it, right? But when you got on the, on the country roads and whatnot, there's no one really around. You need to know how fast you're going because the police officers will hide and, and get you. The real problem, of course, was, was the fuel gauge, there is no way of knowing if you're low on fuel. Think about it. Uh, when it, when a car can run, for the most part, as smoothly when it's low on gas as it is when it's full on gas, right? I'm not saying you should let it go low on gas. At least that's what my father wanted me to say. Uh, but as a general rule, you, you, if you've got a quarter of a tank, it runs just as fine as you have three quarters of a tank. And you don't really notice it until it completely shuts down. Food, the temptation is, is for us, to, for us to see food as just fuel. We eat it because we need it, and then we go about our day. But food, of course, is more than fuel because the body is more than a machine. Food certainly is fuel. Without it, we will break down. But our bodies start to break down and we become, we, we, we noticeably begin to break down if someone is dehydrated or someone is, is low on certain vitamins or nutrients. We, we, our bodies start to slow down until we eventually shut down. But food is, again, more than fuel. It is, a, it is social and communal, for example. Chances are your first date with your significant other started or at some point involved food. You went out to eat. Uh, and maybe for nostalgic reasons, you go back to that restaurant, right? And you enjoy a meal. Uh, good chance this Friday when we enjoy the date night, which if you don't know, drop the kids off. The youth will try to keep them alive while you and your special loved one um, go out on a date. Me and the missus, We'll probably pick a restaurant. I say we. I will have to pick a restaurant, you know, because, you know, and then I'll, I'll give her three options and she will, well, you know, we did just eat there. You know, you know y'all been married long enough. You know what it is I'm talking about. Um, so, so what we see then is that food is more than fuel. Food is something we long for. It's something that we 
crave. It isn't just, we're not just machines. We are image bearers of God. No wonder then that the Bible sees food, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, as a metaphor for more than fuel. It views food as a picture for desire. Again, we, we looked at this a few weeks ago, so I don't want to spend forever on this. In Genesis 3, the, the, the first sin that sent man into uh, brokenness was food-related, right? It was a fruit from the tree. Esau, in Genesis 25, gives up his birthright for a bowl of soup. In the Exodus, they prefer slavery over life in the wilderness because they are hungry. Jesus is asked to turn stones into bread. They give up everything for bread. In John chapter 6, in his version of the feeding of the 5,000, he is nearly crowned king for the sake of food. And we looked at a few verses then, didn't we, that Paul will say that those who seek after sins, they have an unhealthy craving within themselves. Food is so much more than fuel. And so when we read this story, we need to see there's a lot more happening here than merely Jesus feeding people. What we need to see is that Jesus is feeding people, not just physically, but spiritually. Let's start with a miracle in verses, uh, starting in, in verse 13. Um, this, as we said before, is the only miracle recorded in the four Gospels other than the resurrection. Uh, no other miracle, particularly if it's shared in the synoptics, John doesn't have it. But this one is found. The problem is presented right away in verse 15, isn't it? The, the crowds have been following Jesus for a long time and it's getting dark and no one has eaten anything for a long time. Now, by American Baptist or American Southern Baptist standards, a long time is 15, 20, 30 minutes. I, I've told this story before uh, where I served as pastor before. They, there was a guy who uh, it was really good he would do this. I didn't know at the time and wouldn't admit it at the time, but he would say, preacher, what are you preaching on today? And I would have to give him an answer in a sentence or more, right? Because he would ask right as the service was started. And, and uh, he would also say, well, are we going to get out in time for lunch today? And we would joke back and forth, right? And one day I knew, I knew I wasn't going to let them out on time, let alone early. So I brought crackers with me. And he said, we're going to get out early. No, here's a snack to hold you off, right? You know, if, if 40 minutes going to be too long for you, Hoss. Here's a snack, right? That's the American way. Three to four hours is, is really about the limit many of us uh, have, unless, of course, we're asleep. Even then, there's still that midnight snack. Well, for them, a long time would be an entire day. Most of these people struggle with hunger pains pretty regularly, and food was constantly on the mind. This means that Jesus and the disciples, because they've been following Jesus all this time, would have assumed some responsibility for meeting the nourishment needs of the crowd as a matter of hospitality. Uh, but they don't have the money to feed the crowd. Uh, we see that it's, it's a year's wage we find in the Gospels to defeat everybody here. Can you imagine uh, that, just, just that right there? Uh, some time ago, I was trying to explain to the kids that, yeah, we can do X, Y, and Z, right? If we didn't spend money on anything else, we could do this, right? That meant no food or groceries. That meant no gas. That meant no mortgage payments. That meant... Uh, no, no uh, electricity or water, none of it, right? We can't go see Grammy and Mama. We, 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 we can't do anything. We got to stand right here and hope we don't die after 365 days. Then we would have the money, right? It's a year's wage is what, what it is that we, we were looking at. And that's, that's exactly what it is. For a single meal, it would have taken a year's wage. And they didn't plan for a potluck, right? No one brought their casserole, right? No one brought their, uh, 
banana pudding, right? That's the East Frankfurt uh, treat there. Uh, no one brought any of that. And no one brought hardly any food at all, right? Because these are mostly men, and men do not plan ahead. Right, ladies? Right, ladies? That's, that's a chance to say amen. Um, you know, but... Uh, um, <laughs> But even if they did bring food, it wasn't large enough for, for the crowd. So the option Jesus is left with is send people home. We can't afford it, so send them home. Well, the solution is presented in verse 16. Jesus said, they don't need to go home. You feed them. You give them something to eat. Um, Jesus, did you not hear what the committee said? This, we, we haven't budgeted for this. We don't have the resources for this. And Walmart is closed, so um, we, we, we can't feed them. Like, I, th- I thought we had charts and everything. Surely you can, you, 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 you can understand this, right? Now, they do at least come up with a plan. It's, it's there in verse 17 where it says, We have only five loaves here and two fish. Can I, can I change the ESV translation there to just to sort of get the tone I think that we're going here? It's not we have only, it's we only have five loaves of bread and two fish, right? Often we present the story as the disciples come in and saying, Look, Jesus, look what we found. We found food. You can take care of the rest. We believe in you. And that's not what they're doing. This is a committee of 12, right? And committees of four or five in a Baptist church are problematic enough. Now you're going to double that, right? And what they're saying is, all right, Jesus, we've had enough. We, we, we've done the research. We've, we've, we, 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 we've interviewed everybody, and this is what we found. We got a little Lunchable of this little boy, and you're not going to take food from his mouth, are you? His mother packed this meal for him, and what sort of person are you to take away his food? We can't feed everybody with a little boy lunch. We only have five loaves of bread and two fish. And to be clear, when it says loaf, it doesn't mean, you know, sliced bread loaf, right? That's not what they're talking about. Because you can feed you a half-grown man with, with those five loaves of bread, right? I mean, and two fish, we, we think, well, he's a good fisherman. He, he, he saved the ones that are trawl big. That's not the case at all. These would have been smaller. And, 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 and uh, so, so it, it's just enough food for the little boy. Um, and and he's clearly hasn't hit puberty yet because, because otherwise he would need to triple the amount of food that, that he has and maybe throw on a frozen pizza on, on top of that. Right? So, so their conclusion is we can't do this. Here's the evidence. This is all we have. It is insufficient to meet the needs of the people. Now, if you know your Bible, this story probably sounds familiar because Moses essentially complained of the same thing. Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? They weep before me, and I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. Did you see that? Church people makes the prophets of God and pastors of the local church want to just die. I can't handle it anymore, Jesus, right? It's in the Bible. I didn't say that. Moses did, okay, right? <laughs> then throw COVID on top of it, right? Um, but... Uh, so disciples here are acting like Moses. Jesus, you, you've asked us for something that is simply impossible to do. So what does Jesus do? He says, oh, okay, I'll take a little boy's lunch. Cracks his knuckles, no doubt, and he, he goes to work. We know the story, right? He takes a little boy's lunch, and he feeds a multitude. We, we mentioned this in passing today, that Elisha does a miracle like this. He takes some uh, bread and some grain, I think it was, and he feeds 100 men. 
Uh, and, and that, of course, is mirrored here. And if we wanted to take the time, we could compare the two. And, and the parallels are quite striking. But you'll notice verse 19, Jesus has everyone to sit in rows, right? This is probably, you think of it like a garden as it's, it's organized. And, and, and so this is really where the numbers, the statistics come from. And it counts men. Of, of course, we, we get, there's a lot of debates about that. That's in verse 21, you know, how many, 5,000 men. So, so there's a lot of estimates. And really, it's a waste of time trying to figure out the estimates. Um, I think the more conservative you can be, the better, uh, because it's likely that the crowd was predominantly men because in a patriarchal world, women and young children were lo- likely to stay home. Okay? So it's not like you have men and their entire families. It's more likely that those who traveled far, it's just the men and maybe their son or something like that. But you, you can come with all kinds of numbers, uh, 10,000, 15,000. Some will say 25,000. I, I, I don't know. They, they, Jesus fed the Super Bowl. I, I mean, I, I don't know. What, what, nor does it matter. It was a multitude. It was thousands of, of people. But he has them sit in the grass. And he, he feeds them. This, of course, is an act of creation. Think about it. The fish they were eating had never swam. This is an act of creation. He created out of nothing. And you'll notice there in verse 20, they all ate and were satisfied, right? That is the Baptist dream, right? It is, you know, the sit back, rub your belly, and say, I am stuffed, right? Oh, growing up, uh, my dad waited on no one when it came to eating. So often, I think I've told you this before, dad would be done eating by the time my mother sat down to eat, right? Because when we were little, she would fix our plates. And I've learned as a dad, you can't trust kids with a spoon to dip it under a plate and everything make it, right? I mean, it just, it is such a pet peeve of mine. Uh, I won't say which one of our two kids is the worst at that. They may or may not be here, but, but, but it, 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 it so, so mom just did it, just did it herself, right? She, she couldn't handle that sort of stress. And, and uh, uh, so by the time she would sit down, dad'd be done eating. You know, he would just scarf it down. And, and so he would, he would poop, move, move the chair to the side, right? He'd rub that Baptist belly. You know, he's like, well, mama, you did yourself again. Kids, when you get done eating, you get to clean the table and do the dishes, right? I mean, this is the same routine all the time, right? I mean, this is what they're doing. They're just sitting back, rubbing, and mostly men, just rubbing their belly, eating life good. That was, that was some good cooking, Jesus. Didn't know you had it in you. But this is a significant detail. We pass over because we're always full. Chances are, after worship this morning and, and all the Methodists had gone home because that Baptist preacher of yours went too long, that, that you ate and you ate to the full. Right? It didn't matter where you went. If you went home or to the Cracker Barrel, you ate till you were full. Guess what for dinner? If you haven't eaten already, you're going to eat to the full. In between there, you're going to have a snack. And that snack is going to fill you up until dinner time. And good chance that when your wife is getting ready for bed, you know you have about a four-hour period there to eat again. You're going to eat to the full, right? That's not the case back then. Most of the people here on the average day never really experience a full stomach like we do three times a day or more. Outside of special occasions when a fatty calf was killed, many at this place have probably never eaten like this. There was more than enough food for everybody. In fact, there was left over. And that's just going to go in the refrigerator and no one's going to eat it. And then dad's got to throw it away and he's going to get frustrated. Why did I go to the grocery and get this stuff if you're just going to throw food away, right? There's plenty left over here. Well, 
The question then becomes, what, what is the message of the miracle? We, we, we know it well, no doubt. We've, we've read the story a thousand times. What's the message of it? What's the point? Well, as you can imagine, the popularity of this miracle means there is an abundance of interpretations. And, and I, at times I do find these interpretations fascinating because moralism and agenda-driven interpretation is far too common in our churches. It's the difference between exegesis and asegesis. This is your seminary lesson. Exegesis is to draw out the meaning of the text. Asegesis is to put into the text a, a presupposed meaning. And moralism is a way of doing that and other agendas. Can, can I give you two common ones I see all the time? One is that this is a parable, if you will, for discipleship. And one of the beefs I have with the miracles of Jesus is we turn the miracles into parables. Now, there may be some truth to that, but we need to see them as historical events that point us to a fuller understanding of the cross and the kingdom of God. And so some will say, well, what you have here is a parable for discipleship and for disciples. God, after all, is going to use these men to do great things. Jesus provides the meal, but he uses the disciples to, to, to defeat uh, the nations, right? And so too, you as a disciple of Jesus, if you will be an instrument in God's hands, you can do great and wonderful things of God, right? And boy, that'll preach, right? Because you'll, you'll leave here thinking, that's right. I can do great things for Jesus and you'll never think about it again. Another option that people often do is, is uh, we do this with the miracles of Jesus and that is we turn Jesus into a humanitarian, and it's amazing that Jesus would vote the way I would vote. And he is like the head of my party, of course. Um, so, so what you have then is, well, Jesus is feeding the hungry. So the point of the story is, we should feed the hungry. Well, you probably already knew that when you came in here. Right? Yes, Jesus did feed the hungry. He did serve the poor. He, he, he did those great acts of justice. But, but is that the point of the passage? I think something else is going on here. And if I were to use one word, it would be the word provision. But what he provides is more than bread for hungry mouths. He provides something far greater. Remember, these miracles always point us to the cross and to the kingdom. Three things I think the Lord provides for us here in this miracle. First of all, he provides for us rest. We actually saw this, uh, I believe it was last week, right? Coming on the heels of, come to me, all who are, are, are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And right after that is, is a miracle about the Sabbath, which is a holiday for rest. This isn't uncommon that in the miracles we see Jesus being presented as the Lord of rest. I think I can prove this to you. I want you to notice something strange about Matthew's telling. The other gospels sort of hint at this, but Matthew is explicit about it. In verse 15, where are they? How is the setting described for you? Is, is it described as a desolate place, a wilderness? A desert. Go down to verse 19. How is that place, the same place they've been, how is that described? They sit in grass. Where'd the grass come from? Either it's desolate or it's a place of living. 
Which, which is it? Either Matthew doesn't know much about uh, grass and grounds and bushes and trees and all that, or he is telling us something about Jesus and this event. Is it not the work of God throughout the Bible to bring order out of chaos, or more specifically, to create an oasis out of a desert? For those of you who've been coming on Wednesday nights, we've seen this theme over and over again. So I want to emphasize Genesis or sort of put it all together. You can go to Genesis chapter 2, right? It starts there that, that, that uh, there was no bush in the field that yet land and small plants. Are, and that bush will not be mentioned again until Hagar will come to. She, she lays her son Ishmael under a bush. Why? She's in a desolate place. Okay? So here we, there's, there's no bush in the field, no small plant in the field. He had sprung up, right? There's, there's, there's no water. So there was no man to work the ground and a mist was growing up from the land. It was watering the whole face of the ground. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden. Notice here what you have is a garden of Eden is in the middle of the wilderness. And so God places man in the garden so that the borders of the garden... It would be expanded and expanded to, to, to uh, encompass the whole earth so that what was once a wilderness will now become an oasis. This is the point of Adam working the ground in the garden. Remember, the garden is inside of Eden. Eden is not itself only a garden. There is no rain in the wilderness. But the Lord, out of that, created a garden. Or you can go to chapter 13. Remember the story of Lot picking Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered and everywhere like the garden of the Lord. We are to see a connection to Eden here. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So, so what we perceive as an oasis in the story turns into a desert, right? A spiritual desert. That's where Sodom and Gomorrah is. And God will destroy it with fire and brimstone. There's no garden there left anymore as a result. However, when Lot goes east, which is bad in Genesis, Abraham is left with a garden. We, we, we see often here when Mamre is referenced, we see a reference to oaks, trees. Now, he gets the worst of the land, but what is a desert, God turns into an oasis for Abraham. And what Lot thought was an oasis gets turned into a desert by God. Or look at Genesis 16. Angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness. That is the definition of an oasis. God finds her there. He invests in her. He takes care of her. Later, when she flees again in, in chapter 21, a similar story. The water in the skin was gone. Remember, Abraham gives her a bucket of water and says, good luck. And, and she goes out and all that water is gone. She puts the child under the bushes we just referenced. Then God opened her eyes. And what does she see in the wilderness, in the desert? A spring. You can still go to this day and find the spring. It is a holy site for Muslims. You see that there is a garden in the wilderness. Can I give you just, just one more example? Exodus 17. Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water will flow from it, and the people will drink. Now, notice what just happens. There is no water in the wilderness, but God creates an oasis for his people. This pattern is found throughout Scripture, and I could give you another dozen examples throughout the Bible. 
Clearly, no wilderness is too great for our maker and redeemer. I said this has to do with rest. And that is exactly what a garden is in the ancient world, right? Is a place to rest. The abundance of food, pleasant scenery, a place to rest. Perhaps the closest we have in our vernacular would be that of a beach. It's a place to go and rest. Maybe you still don't believe about this, this interpretation. I'm willing to bet that when you read that it was once a desolate place, but then God had them laid down in the grass. Is there a passage of the Old Testament that comes to mind? I suspect if you give us some thought, one will. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And notice, he restores my soul. I don't know if you know much about sheep, but the reason the shepherd has to make them lie down in green pastures is because they're easily anxious and they're worried of the death that that their basic needs won't, won't be met. And so what the shepherd at times has to come is he has to soothe them down, has to calm them down. He has to make them lie down in green pastures. Everything's okay. So in the story, what you have is a savior who draws them into a wilderness, but he lays them down in green grass. What was once a desert is now a garden. The Lord provides rest. There's a lot of panic in this passage, but not with the Savior. Secondly, the Lord provides a kingdom here. One of the things that we can see this is if we juxtapose this passage with the passage that comes before it. And I know our studying of miracles, the thematic study of Matthew, means that we do a lot of skipping. But just for sake of simplicity, the first 12 verses is the death of John the Baptist. And so there's a couple things we can juxtapose between the two stories. The first is we meet two kings, right? Matthew's big point is that Jesus is king. So when we see another king, we should make note of that, right? Because now we got two kings. Who's the true king of Israel? And we see in the first 12 verses, Herod, and and in verses 13 to 21, we see Jesus. (coughs) The first king represents the kingdom of man uh, marked by injustice and foolishness. He doesn't care if, if, if John is guilty. Rather, he uses John as a political prop. And it is an act of foolishness. The kingdom of God, on the other hand, is marked by mercy and compassion. So so do this. Look at verse 9 of chapter 14. Verse 9 says, And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. That is injustice. That is evil. That is cowardness. That is foolishness. Compare that with verse 14. It says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, He had compassion on them and healed the sick. What a contrast. So not only do we see two kings, but we see two kings in the midst of two feasts, giving two feasts. With Herod, we see the drunken debauchery of a petty potentate. With Jesus, we see the provisional manna of the promised Messiah. What a difference we have here. 
So we are to see here what is the sort of kingdom we are to get in Jesus. We don't want that kingdom. That kingdom targets the righteous. That kingdom promotes injustice. This kingdom is different because the king is different. We don't long for a kingdom of man. We, we hope for the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is realized in Christ. Maybe you still don't believe me about this. What's the detail we get in verse 20? How much food is left over? Twelve baskets. This is clearly purposeful, and Matthew's inclusion of it is, I believe, theological. The story is to remind us of God feeding the Jews in the desert during the Exodus. Twelve baskets correspond, of course, to the twelve apostles who were carrying the baskets, and they correspond to the twelve tribes of Israel. And I won't spend forever on this, but, but Matthew, as we've seen, presents Jesus as a true and better Israel. So you may recall in Matthew 2, Jesus flees to Egypt and he comes out of Egypt. That's why Matthew 2, 15, it says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I call my son. He's quoting Hosea. Hosea is not looking forward to Messiah. He's looking back to the Exodus. And Matthew bridges that by showing Jesus is a true and better Israel. Matthew 3 is the baptism of Jesus, which then is followed by 40 days, 40 nights in the desert, which corresponds to the baptism of Israel through the Red Sea, followed by 40 years in the wilderness. And there in the wilderness of both Jesus and Israel, they face temptations, and those temptations match each other in Matthew chapter 4. In chapter 5 to 7, Jesus gives a new law. He goes to the top of a mountain. He presents a new law in this new kingdom. What does Moses do in the wilderness? He climbs a mountain. He presents the people a new law for a new kingdom. <coughs> Matthew 10, we're given the 12 apostles which correspond, of course, to the 12 tribes. And here we are given 12 baskets. In the end, what we have is an abundance of bread in the wilderness. This is a retelling of the Exodus story. But there is a major difference between that generation of the Exodus and this generation with the feeding of the multitude. That generation died in the wilderness because of their sins. It's very clear. The reason they're wandering around for 40 years isn't because their GPS wasn't working. It was because God waited until every soul of that generation died before entering the promised land. They died because of their sin. Here what we see is provisional manna of the Messiah comes, and the generation here won't die because of their sin. Jesus rather dies for their sin. It's a very different kingdom. In corresponding with the Exodus narrative, Jesus provides for the physical needs of the crowd of the wilderness. God can take what seems a little and turn it into a lot. This is all about God's provision. Not only are we to see a physical provision, but there is a spiritual one as well. Although they are given bread, they are given far more than bread. They are, giving Christ, they are given Christ himself. And that, of course, is the direction John goes with the bread of life language. What a different kingdom this is. What a better kingdom this is, that those who come to the king will never be hungry again. Isn't that good news? Thirdly, the Lord provides fullness. It's right there in verse 20, isn't it? They all ate and they were satisfied. How rare is it to get a multitude? Or let's just say a couple dozen Baptists and everybody leaves satisfied, right? Has that ever happened in the history of the world? Here you have thousands. 
I left my water back yonder. They have thousands, and they all eat and are satisfied. Although it is significant that an impoverished people were full due to the provisions of Jesus, what is happening here is more than physical hunger satisfied. In fact, this word satisfied is not used too much in Matthew's gospel. In fact, it's only been used one other time in Matthew's gospel. And I think that's significant. It's used in the Beatitudes. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, just pause there. Can you think of a story in Matthew's gospel where people are hungry and thirsty and the Lord meets their need? Can you think of a story like that? Let me tell you a story about Jesus feeding a multitude of thousands. But notice, blessed are they who hunger and thirst, not for a bread that perishes, to use John's language, but for righteousness. Why? They will be satisfied. So if you're looking for a parable, turn this miracle into a parable, perhaps that's it. He's already prepared us for this narrative. That those who eat of the bread that Jesus offers will never be hungry again. In fact, I think I can prove the connection of this verse to this passage. What is, the, what is the word in verse 19? What does Jesus do before he gives of the bread and the fish? He blesses it, and they are satisfied. What does he say in Matthew 5? Blessed are they who are satisfied. So if you're looking for a parable, again, I, I think this is what we were to see. Those who starve for Jesus, who hunger for his righteousness, what you will find is satisfaction in him, in him alone. When my wife and I went off to college, she had already had a a year of college under her belt. She commuted to NKU, but then she moved to the University of Louisville. I went to Boyce College, not to confuse a boys college. Those who don't have ears to hear, let me clarify. And, and we came in every few weeks or whatnot. We were, I was looking for a youth ministry position, but also we were looking at churches in Louisville that, that we can get involved with. And so I'm sympathetic to those who have gone through that process of looking for a church. And, and I still remember the first time we came home for college, right? Other than, you know, calling our parents, I hadn't really seen them. <coughs> so mom made my favorite meal she fixes. It is baked chicken with her noodles. I don't know what she does with her noodles. I've tried to fix those noodles. There's chicken broth in them. I'll let you ladies figure it out. And then when you figure it out, I'm coming to your house, right? I just love it. Oh, it's so good. I mean, make you want to smack your mama, right? And she's the one that cooked it, right? I mean, it's so good. I just love it. With a big, tall glass of Coca-Cola with no ice, because why would you ruin a good thing? It is so good. And then, and then I know there's a lot of noodles, but if she could throw her, her uh, like macaroni and cheese, homemade macaroni and cheese, I like noodles, if you can't tell. And then she could put her mashed potatoes on there. Who needs vegetables, right, when you're in college, okay? I mean, that, that, is, that is like kingdom of God living right there, right? That is... Take me home, Jesus, because it's all down here from here for me, right? But, but she fixed this meal, just the noodles and the chicken, because she didn't love me that much. And, and, and I, without realizing it, I was so hungry that mom and dad said that, they told me this like a year or two later, they put down their forks and watched me eat. I mean, just, uh, it was like the guy from Elf, right? Just, just going at it, right? You know, with, with syrup and spaghetti, just, just, just going at it. And of course, they had two different reactions, right? I mean, uh, if, if cell phones were as popular then as they were now, dad would have been taking pictures, right? Right, video, we're gonna send this to your sister. She's gonna get a good laugh at this. 
My mother's reaction was, oh no, he's not eating. He's just going to school and he's starving, right? And that's how the tradition started of me raiding their kitchen, you know, their, uh, their, their groceries, because mom was convinced I wasn't eating anything. Well, the problem was, was I was 18, 19 years old and I was hungry, right? And I didn't have a home-cooked meal in, in weeks and weeks and weeks. But pigging out, by the end of it, I was certainly satisfied. And the point of the Bible is that everything you long for Everything you desire, everything you hunger for can only be satisfied in Christ. Isn't that what David wrote in Psalm 107? He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. You see, he's he's not talking about fuel there. He's talking about something far greater. Just as only cold water can truly quench thirst, so too only Christ can satisfy the soul. Pursuing anything other than Jesus is like drinking ocean water to quench our thirst. And we live in an age of unquenchable desires. Think about how how can we be so rich as a nation, and yet we are starving in this society? How can we be so powerful as a nation, and yet feel so weak all the time? How can we be so influential, and yet we are the most lonely of people? How can we be so advanced, and yet we are so anxious? Because technology and humans are good at fixing the external, a pill, a a vaccine, a new technology. We're so good at fixing the external, we've never been able to figure out the internal. We can mass produce food, but we cannot satisfy the soul. Because we're more than just mere machines. We were made for something greater. Could it be that much of us here and outside of these halls, these walls, we are in a wilderness? But what we have in Christ is one who provides for us an oasis right here in the middle of this desert. And under his providential care in the kingdom, he rules and he reigns. And if we would but come, If we would but rest at his feet, what will we find? True satisfaction, true fullness, true contentment, true peace, true joy, true love in he who died for us. Let's go, Lord, in prayer.